In today's episode, an incredible story about what a true chabrusa is and its implications on the culture of dissenting dialogue today, or its lack thereof, differentiating between information and wisdom and the note on mentors, discovering the root of the trolley problem, and a discussion on navigating conflicting values. Joe Judge says he won't disrespect the NFL like the Eagles. We respond. Deep to our idea of what a name is. Why the second book of the Chumash is called Names and an Antidote to Depression, Anxiety, and Disconnection. This is the Chavrusa Podcast. I'm Moshe Shomron. Thank you for joining us where we explore 3,000 years of ancient and relevant wisdom that have inspired some of men's, men and women, great, history's greatest men and women. On the subject of Chavrusas, is an amazing story in the Torah and Tractate Kesubes talks about two Chavrusas. One's name was Rabbi Yochanan and one was called Reish Lakish. And they used to learn and discuss Jewish ideas and laws every day. And unfortunately, Reish Lakish died. And the rabbis of the time were really worried about Rabbi Yochanan, who was a super important rabbi of his day, because they thought that without his Chavrusa, he would go into a depression and eventually die. So they said, we got to find him a new Chavrusa to cheer him up. So they send him Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer ben Pidas, who was known to know the entire Torah backward and forward. And whenever Rabbi Yochanan would express an opinion, Rabbi Eliezer ben Pidas would respond and he would say, there's a, actually a source that supports this. And he would bring him um, different supports to his opinions. And after two days of this, Rabbi Yochanan starts tearing his hair out and he starts yelling, Rish Lakish, Rish Lakish, come back. They sent me this guy, whenever I say uh, something, he says, you're right. Do you think I need to know I'm right? Do I need him to tell me that I'm right? When you were here, Rish Lakish, every time I would express an opinion, you would show me 24 reasons why I was wrong. And then I would now have to find 24 counter arguments to show that I was right. And the end result is that you grew and I grew. So please take this man away. And it's a fascinating point. Learning, this desire to learn, not to support my preconceived convictions, but to broaden my horizon, to learn something new. Tolstoy is quoted as saying that he doesn't he doesn't understand how people can live without communicating with the wising communicating with the wise with the wisest people who ever lived on earth. We have resources, we have books, we have wisdom that has tested 3,000 years of inspiring world's greatest men and women of all time. And how is it, says Tolstoy, I don't understand how you could uh, go without communicating without these these wonderful resources. And that's the idea of, of Chavrusa, of learning in general, not only on your own, but learning out from others, learning from others. There's a uh, saying that goes, or a story that goes, that the founder of Stoicism, Zeno, I think his name was, um, he he's a successful merchant and he's browsing a bookstore and he hears in the back somebody's quoting a saying from Socrates. And he's really taken by the saying and he realizes that it was super wise 
but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, wow, that's something really cool and interesting. I'm going to implement it in my life. Instead, he goes over to the person reading and he says, where can I find a man like that to learn from? I had this idea that to have a mentor, to always be looking for more wisdom, to have a resource of consistently plugging in. I know uh, Rabbi Elias Fay. Rabbi Elias Fay, he was the dean, the head of the Talmudical Academy, the Yeshiva of Philadelphia, uh, one of the greatest yeshivas in modern day America. And Rabbi Elias Fay was super close to his rabbi, Rabbi Shach. He would consult with him in, in terms of all his uh, personal questions and personal growth. And this is somebody who is the, the veneered, the venerated. Uh, Rosh Hashiva of his generation in America. He's one of the ro- role models to thousands of people. And he's consulting with his own rabbi. And then right at, his rabbi fell sick, Rav Shach and Israel fell sick. And Rav Svei asked him and he said, listen, you know, we have to be realistic about this. Who should I seek to if I can't count on you for wisdom in the future? Who is somebody you'd recommend that I See that I speak to, that I consult with, that I ask questions to. And he suggested Rav Steinman, Varley Steinman, who at the time was, I believe, like 20 years junior, Rav Svei. And that's what happens. He ends up, after Rav Shach passes away, he goes to Rav Steinman and, and um, accepts him as his mentor, somebody 20 years his junior. Not only is he the uh the, one of the greatest minds of the generation but he's always looking to learn always looking to uh gain new things and that's something uh super super powerful that the the jewish understanding the torah's understanding of chachma of wisdom is not that you recruit knowledge it's not that oh you just gotta learn 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 and then you have a set amount of information and you could just uh you know, implant a chip, memory chip into somebody's mind and they got all the information and now they're wise. No, no, no. There's a, a, a quite the difference between having information and having the wisdom, the wisdom of how to take that information and implement it into life and to apply it into different situations when you have a clash of different um, values and you're not sure how to navigate what takes precedence, what is more vital. And that is the ability of wisdom and the ability to share it, to learn it, to bounce it off ideas, to to check it out, to hear it against other people and what they think. Uh, there's a military term. I think it's a military term called red teaming. Red teaming, and, and a lot of investors use this. We are, let's say, in a partner meeting or, or something like that, you have all your colleagues and all your friends attack your belief system to attack your assumptions right they try their best to poke holes in your theories because that's how it's going to be thoroughly tested that's how it's going to bring out the best in a position and it will give you that ultimate confidence instead of trying to eradicate and to eliminate any opinion that doesn't jive with your belief system instead of avoiding any term any confrontation or any risk to your theory to red team it and to to find out that 
the weakest link, and then ultimately to improve it, the the Gemara, the Torah, and Tractate Gittin says, Adam Omed al Torah Ella A person can only truly understand words of Torah if you first make a mistake in interpreting them. You first need to stumble on the Torah, because once you make a mistake, and you realize, oh, there's something off here. There's a dissonance here. Then you reinvigorate yourself. You throw yourself back into the learning, and you end up uh, you end up getting to the to the full truth that's uh, underlying it. Rashi over there in the Torah says he says, "Who knows in leave, That once you have the mistake, you have the the taut v'yachlimu. You're embarrassed. You you feel that you, there's a dissonance here. All right, it's not that oh I'm embarrassed that I made a mistake. It's that there's something here that's missing. There's a, a dissonance. And that gap is what inspires you to fill it up as opposed to if you go through life thinking, oh, I know everything and I don't need uh, to learn anything. There's a fascinating introduction to uh, one of the greatest uh, Talmudic works of all time. It's, it's uh, unbelievable and it's just sheer sheer brilliance and it's sheer... Um, Novelty, the Ktsos Hachoshen, the Ktsos, uh, the Ktsos. It's uh, probably the best seller. It's a very popular bar mitzvah gift for budding Talmudic scholars. And the Ktsos, in his introduction, writes a very interesting musing. He says, Imagine if a person would have the, the greatest experience. You have this unbelievable experience. You see the most fascinating things in the world. If you would have nobody to tell it over to, you'd be missing out on the whole on the whole enjoyment of it. Giving over that idea, having that friendship, having that chavrusa that you're able to share an experience with makes it all the more powerful and and so vital to in life not only <laughs> to have a you know chavrusa podcast because that's 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 nice but it's not it's not um it's not the full engagement of having a Chabura, chavrusa, having friends, having mentors, having people that you could bounce off ideas with, and that it's a, a safe space, and that it's a non-judgmental zone that you could express your opinion, whatever you think it is, because you know that your opinions all will be heard with respect, and you'll hear others' opinions, other opinions with respect. That's the real safe space. Not that you're canceling out those other opinions, but that there's a respect, there's a eagerness to learn and to understand and to discuss. That is probably the greatest pleasure in life. And so lucky, so privileged are people that have that scenario, whether it's in a yeshiva setting or whether it's in a community setting that you could carve out those those friendships, those ears that you're able to really have these these discussions that allow us to learn and, and to grow as people and to communicate with some of the be- best ideas around. As an example of, of wisdom being when you have a clash of, of values. So first of all, just a fascinating question that, that always uh, percolates in, in the back of my mind is a delicate issue of balancing, preserving traditions and maintaining adaptiveness where both of them have super vital and crucial roles and you don't want to go too much in either direction and you, you need uh, mechanisms for for handling these subtle trade-offs 
between something that becomes a tradition as it's uh, adapting and maintaining its uh, its core values and its its core um, principles, while still balancing uh, navigating its moral intuitions and and reasonings. So, uh, another example would be. And this is cool trivia that I just found out in what's commonly known as the trolley problem or the trolley dilemma, where you have a trolley rolling down the tracks and it's on, on pace uh, to knock over and kill five people. And you could divert it and go on to a different track that kills one person. And a second scenario would be what if it's not just pulling a lever to switch the track, but it's actually pushing somebody onto the track to stop the trolley. Now, this was popularized in the 1960s. In 1967, Philippa Foote published a paper comparing uh, these two cases, and then eventually the philosopher Thompson, Judith Thompson, uh, spread it on the in the form of trolley problems now the 14 years earlier 14 years earlier earlier in 1953 was published uh these two exact scenarios without the trolley but the same uh components to it by and it was published by rabbi avraham yeshai karelitz known as the Chazon Ish, the name of his book. And this was in his writings on tractates on Hedron and the Torah. And the Chazon Ish considers a case where a projectile is on target to hit and kill a crowd of people, uh, but somebody's in a position to deflect it so that the crowd will be saved, but a different bystander would be killed. And in discussing this case, the Chazon Ish bases it on a Mishnah thousands of years earlier that the Mishnah talks about a group of hostages. If you have a group of hostages that are being threatened with death unless they hand over one of the members in the group to be killed. And the Mishnah in Sanhedrin uh, concludes that it is forbidden for the group to save themselves by giving up one of the members. The Chazanish argues then that even with the Mishnah's ruling, one could nevertheless deflect the projectile uh, because the cases are different. In the case of the projectile, when you deflect it, so it's a a proactive act. You're going out and deflecting it with a negative consequence, um, and therefore it is permitted. While in the case of the hostages, the handing over of the hostage is inherently a negative act, right? You're, when you're deflecting the projectile, that's a good thing because you're actively saving somebody. By doing this, it's actively saying, saving somebody with a grumma, with an unintended um, result. You wish you wouldn't ha- have that, but it's a, after the fact, there's going to be a, a cause, a causative um negative result, as opposed to, in the case of the hostages, giving over that hostage in itself is a bad thing, in itself is negative, is is in itself uh, immoral, with a positive consequence that people are saved. This distinction, um, known in, in doctrine as double effect, the double effect attributed to many different uh, thinkers over, over the, the ages, fascinating to explore how, when different values come in to effect, and there aren't any necessarily clear paths as to what to go forward, what framework and what system of, of wisdom are you using? Are you becoming a deontologist, 
that just goes with what is based on your moral principles, no matter, regardless of the consequences, do you go with a, a different form, the opposite spectrum of consequentialism, um, such as like utilitarianism, Kantianism, where it goes by tallying the overall utility um, to society in such moral dilemmas. And it's a cool part. I just like the trivia part that the Chazonish in Bnei Brak in the super small city near the Ben-Gurion Airport, super holy city, um, was the one in 1953 who brought this to uh, the forefront. And uh, I'm indebted to this book that I'm reading now. I recommended it on Friday's podcast in the book recommendation segment um, called Judaism Straight Up, which is where I discovered this Chazon-ish. Perhaps a uh, current a current iteration of the trolley problem is this is headlines on ESPN. Joe Judge reacts to Philadelphia Eagles' effort on Sunday Night Football, says New York Giants will never disrespect the game like the Eagles did. Sunday night, the Giants, 6-10, and 10, terrible record, but they're poised to enter the NFL playoffs if the Washington football team, formerly known as the Redskins, lose to the Philadelphia Eagles. And late in the game, the Eagles pull their starting quarterback and uh, enter in their third-string quarterback, Nate Sudfeld into the contest at, at a time that it was then a three-point game. And Judge was super, head coach of the Giants is super upset. He says, they'll never do that as long as I am the head coach of the Giants. And he says that uh, to take a look at a group of grown men who I asked to give me effort day in and day out, um, I can look them die and assure them I'll always do anything I can do to put them in competitive advantage to me you don't want to ever disrespect those players their efforts the sacrifices etc to disrespect the effort that everyone put forward to make the season a success in the national football league to disrespect the game by not going out there and not competing for 60 minutes we will never do that now a couple things here okay so first of all six and ten record you lost 10 games you don't get to uh blame the other team for winning the game like yeah, you want to make the playoffs, then you make the plays. You don't judge yourself, Mr. Judge, uh, based on how the other teams are playing. This is the the sad manifestation of this like victimization, victimhood. And you know, my brothers are some some big Giants fans, and they're all upset at the uh, at the Eagles. Like, no, you gotta do your own thing if you want to be successful. If you want to. Uh, not just in the NFL, but in life, like you got to take ownership on yourself. You got to take extreme ownership, even if you could blame others, which in this case you can't because <laughs> you only won six games. Like you should have done better on your own thing. If you would have won another game, then you would be in the playoffs. Don't get upset and disrespect the game. That's disrespecting the game by, by thinking that you should have a playoff spot at six and 10. Uh, this does bring rise to another point in, in NFL standings as to divisions where instead of having the different divisions, the NFC East, the NFC West, you should just go by ranking who has the best team, go by meritocracy instead of uh, by divisions. And so that, that was his point in disrespecting. Now here you have an interesting point where maybe it's 
another idea of this like competing values where on one hand the eagles would like to win the game and the players are being paid their job is to go out and compete to their to their highest on the other hand the eagles as a organization want to lose the game because when you lose the game they'll have a lower record and therefore higher draft position for the coming year suiting themselves setting them up for future success and I think what's happening here, it's a, it's, it's a good analogy to life because we go through life and there's this prevalent and uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, debilitating mindset of I need to win. My job here is to win. And therefore, if I don't win, that is a failure. And it's like this all or nothing I need this goal. I set myself the goal and I need, I must get to the goal. And you forget about the process as opposed to somebody that's process oriented, that you're living in the process. And the, the focus, your locus point is how can I be the best that I can do right now? Then it doesn't matter whether at the end of the day you win or you lose, whether you're on rung one of the ladder, rung 99. Did I get this uh, arbitrary goal that I set out? To make the playoffs, because what a Giants will not even make the playoffs. They're going to lose in in the first round. The Washington is going to get crushed because they're a terrible team and they shouldn't be in the playoffs in the first place. But it's like this arbitrary goal. Oh, I need to make the playoffs. Like instead of setting these random goals, oh, I need to be here by the end of twenty twenty one. I want to go do this and that. Just focus on right now the process. I need to be my best. And in this terms, I think the Eagles struck a perfect balance because they didn't. The players didn't take the game. The players didn't start throwing random interceptions. The players went out and competed. They did their best. They said, "This is my job. I'm, I'm a wide receiver. I'm an offensive lineman. Most undervalued people. Uh, offensive lineman take all the blame, but don't take any, don't get any credit." And they're going out and doing their best. And Nate Sudfeld, the third-string quarterback, is entering the game. And he do- goes out and he competes and he does his best. He didn't throw the game. The organization made a point and said that this is better suited for our job because our job is to maximize the, the success of the organization. And for that, we make sense to make this substitution. And the players, if they had the good mindset, I don't know what the Eagle players are saying right now, but I think that the healthier approach to life would be that I do the best that I could do. I need to take care of my circle of concern. I need to do my job. And when everybody does their job together, that's the the beauty of the sum becoming greater than its parts. Jumping into living in the presence, he opens up, today's chapter is called Shemot, never forgetting your name. Shemais is the name of the second book of the five books of Torah that Moshe brought down from Sinai. And it's actually very timely because in uh, this week's cycle of the Torah reading, where you split up the Torah into 52, 54 portions, and you get to uh, learn through the entire Torah every single year. And it happens to be that this week, this weekend, if you go to a shul that has Torah reading, then they will be reading Parsha Shemos, this verse. And the opening verse is, Be'ila Shemos B'nei Yisrael. These are the names of the Jewish people, the Jewish children, Haba'im Mitzrayma, that are entering Egypt, Asiakov, 
Ish Ubeze Bo, uh, Yaakov and his household all come in, and then it delineates all the names of the people. Now, the question is, what's the connection between names and the second book of the Torah, which is primarily the story of the Jewish people's exodus, um, or slavery and subsequent exodus from Egypt, the redemption, the salvation of, of the people. What is the connection to names, Shemais, names? So let's say you take uh, Bamidbar, fourth book, Bamidbar in the desert, is primarily all the stories of the Jewish people in the desert, so it makes sense. What's the connection of names? So first of all, there's a, a wonderful talk, Rav Yosef Dov Salvechik, the Rav, in his commentary on the Torah, comments on this. He says, A name indicates individuality. The Torah wishes to emphasize that Hashem concluded the covenant not with a nation, but with an individual. The covenant was initially made with Avraham alone. And although a community, through its mishaps, could lose its right to exist, Hashem is just dealing with one person. A name signifies uniqueness. This is why the Ten Commandments are addressed in singular terms, not in plural, to emphasize that Hashem relates not only to the collective, but to the individual as well. And that's why in Shemos, each name of Yaakov's children are repeated and emphasized. And he, he relays a story that he visited a secular kibbutz once in, in Israel, and the tour guide introduced him to a cow there uh, whose name was Rachel. And upon hearing this, he instinctively recoiled back and the guide saw his reaction and sarcastically asked, oh, is this one, another one of your rabbinic prohibitions to name a cow? But he explains, what's what's that instinct? Why did he recoil? Because when you give an animal a human name, it's wrong because the individuality denoted by a name, that belongs exclusively to humans. Because every human, a human death, is a loss that can't be replaced. If you have a dog... The, the most greatest friendship that a dog could exhibit for its owner. But a different dog can be substituted that could display an identical friendship. A dog doesn't have a unique mission uh, to accomplish in the world, whereas every single human has something very specific to them, to their individuality, to their passions, to their um, character, to their, their unique makeup, to have some sort of effect in the world. Every single person has their own mission and cannot be replaced. That's the whole concept of reincarnation in Jewish thought, that if you don't do it, it still has got to get done. It's going to have to have a different uh, reiteration of, of having that opportunity to get done. And the, this preservation of life uh, in Jewish ideas of, of human life, the, the whole laws of mourning are there because even if somebody of a lowly character dies, um, that death is a loss because that death has been endowed with a divine image. And this is why a in, in Jewish way of life, in halacha, um, th- there's a great insistence that the name recorded in a marriage document be written with precision. If you're writing a ketubah, then there's a great deal of, of not only historical talks and debates of how exactly to spell the names uh, to get to get the names exactly right why why is there such an elevation on the name because the name is what denotes that that spiritual greatness Avraham changes his name and he adds in a hey and his whole name uh, is reflecting of his of his jump in spirituality um, Rambam Maimonides talks about Yaakov and Yisrael the two different names Jacob and Israel and the different destinies that they uh, each represent 
And that's the appellation of the book of Shemos of names. It signifies that the exodus would have taken place even if only one individual had been enslaved in Egypt. Even if it was just one people. It wasn't just like, oh, so many people were enslaved, so Hashem took them out. Even if there was just one Jew there that was enslaved, there would have been the entire book of Exodus just for that one person. Dr. Epstein, in Living in the Presence, his take on it is that there's a Midrash, part of the Oral Torah, that comments on that first opening verse that in the merit of the Jewish people not having changed their names, during exile of Egypt, they were worthy of redemption. And it's not just a matter of formality and tradition, but the impetus for redemption is a person to remember who they are. Who are you at your core? And that was the entire redemption was contingent on this, that in spite of all the changes and difficulties of their lives in Egypt, they stayed with who they were. In the midst of the oppression, they were able to remember their names. Mitzrayim, the Egypt, the constraints and the constrictions that were backbreaking and arduous, but it was only physical slavery. When a person remembers who they are, nothing could break them. And that's really the opposite. He, he talks about depression from a clinical sense. What depression is, is really when you forget who you are, when you forget your identity and your abilities, what you're capable of doing in life becomes distorted. Your understanding of people around you is inaccurate. The world and its inhabitants become your foes. You go distance from yourself, from your surroundings. Uh, you, you forget your name. You become someone or something else. And successful treatment then is going to restore the person's name and their name to them. You to your name and your name to you. Um, that is the the revelation of the redemption of, of Egypt when exile could be understood as forgetting in general. Exile is forgetting the Balshantov talks about this that when you forget something you are already in exile and when then then the flip side of that is remembering when you remember something you are redeemed and the worst thing to forget is yourself if you forget who you truly are you're exposed to the most painful exile possible exile from yourself and that was the uh pharaoh's strategy uh to, for, to make the jewish people uh forget who they are to depersonalize themselves to make them just another another number and Carl Rogers writes, he says, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. You first need that unconditional acceptance of, of genuine growth. Otherwise, no amount of self-help and hacks in, in life are going to help. If you, if you don't have who you are, if you're not purely settled into your name, then there's nothing you can do to, uh, to grow to become a better person. There's a directive, it's spelled out in the Haggadah that we recite on Passover. In every single generation and every single day, a person must vision as if they themselves are leaving Egypt. And it's not enough just to do it once on Passover. The holiday that talks about and commemorates and reimagines the exodus from Egypt, but like the Lubavitcher Rebbe points out, that the only way it's possible for a person to leave Egypt is if at some point you slip back into Egypt. So you first got to recognize that you're in a space, you're in a space of Egypt into a slavery of sorts of our daily existence. That the, when, when the Torah is telling over this story of Exodus and it's introducing it now uh, in the second book of the Torah, it's not just a storybook. It's not just a once, a time, once upon a time, um, this is what happened. It's not a history book either. Torah is a guide it's a guide and the way the torah formulates it that this is the story of the jewish people as they enter egypt it's for today 
for the reader today, for the Jew today that opens up the Torah and says, this is the story of Exodus as you enter Egypt. When you enter Egypt in your life today, that Egypt as the paradigm of future exile, of exiles of foreign behavior, mannerisms, compelled um, at times to do things antithetical to values, to your values, that you always have an inalienable connection to your essence. Um, that's the deeper meaning that the Jews of Egypt never changed their names because you can act in so many ways that make you feel distance from yourself that I don't feel that I'm, I'm locked into my name, to my identity. I don't feel like I'm invigorating my essential core of who I am. But your name never changes. At the essence, the essence of a person, no matter what you've gone through, no matter your past failures and disappointments, your inner name is immutable. And the, the essence never changes. Uh, you could become comfortable in a mindless state of forgetfulness, but there's always going to be a longing deep within for something true, that remembrance of who you are. There's a Kabbalistic custom uh, that during the Amidah, during prayer, during davening, to recite a verse that corresponds to the first and last letter of your Hebrew name. To find, just like your name, let's say if your name is Moshe, uh, starts with a mem and ends with a hey. To find a verse in the Torah that starts with a mem and ends with a hey and to recite that. Uh, if anyone wants, I have a list of different names and verses, so you could send me your name and I could send you your verse that you could recite. But what's the, what's the emphasis there? Because when you're placing your name and you're, aside from all the deep mystical and Kabbalistic reasons, but on a, on a simple level, the the emphasis of on your name is who are you? What's your core essence? What's your identity? The shame, the neshama uh, has the same root, the word name and soul. That's your, your core essence. So every time you forget, there's another instance when you fall back into Egypt, when you forget you're more than your desires, when you forget you're more than your inadequacies, when you forget that you're not in prison, in prison within your limitations, um, then you're slipping back into this temporary state of exile. But you got to view it as right now you just arrived. It's today. It's not that you're in this thousands of years of slavery, but today, the same way you just got into it, you could get right back out of it. You wake up in the morning. It's a, a fresh start. The the unbelievable power of a new morning. And today is another day. And yesterday I was feeling down and whatever it is today I start anew and it's awesome because like let's say it's this podcast I wasn't really happy with yesterday's episode but I put it out and recorded because it's better to just push it out and and uh not allow my perfectionism to get to me but now today it's a new day and I'm able to start fresh that ability to to get out of these like self-doubts and what are people thinking and what if uh I could have done better but to just come out with a new start to leave Egypt every single day, to wake up with that that pure, unplemished, brand new soul that you could uh, jump back into right who you are. Uh, no matter how low on the ladder, no matter how rock bottom you could hit, you could still transform because the essential part, your name, does not uh, does not stop. And that's the, the beauty and, and the question that Talmud says that a person after your death, you're asked, after your body dies, you're asked, were you longing for redemption? Sapisali Yeshua. Which connotes, you can only long for redemption. It presupposes that you deserve it. You deserve redemption at every single moment. You could say, yes, I'm longing for redemption because I am ready. I'm there and I just got to jump into it. Jump into the sea. Leave the Egypt at every moment of the day.
All right, but getting some great feedback. Thank you, everyone, for sending over your voice notes and your comments. And this episode is already going way longer than I than I anticipated. So I'll save some for future ones. But just for now, just based on yesterday, we had two interesting, conflicting perspectives. Um, I comments in terms of uh, a main and the controversy and what it means for the sake of Judaism versus Brahma. And one point was that we should endeavor to try to find things that unite us instead of things that divide us. And I, I don't think these two opinions are actually exclusive, uh, that they're in conflict, but this is just one point. And the other point I'll read it here is I really liked the clarification and the meaning of Amen and the discussion of grouping all those religions into one box um, that it's important to maintain. And, and I think it's, it's, you get both meaning. Yes, of course. Um, I'm not saying that everybody has to have one path and everyone should find their own path, but be consistent to your path. You can't be a nutritionist handing out waffles and ice cream and fried candy all day. Uh, you got to be faithful to what you believe in. So if you believe in in Brahma, then go for it and go all in. And, and if that's what you is that if that's your chill, uh, but don't be like, oh, I like this, and I also do other things that are in complete uh, conflict and complete contradiction uh, to what I believe in. Because you got to pick something in life. Um, at the same time, when we approach, that's for yourself. When you're approaching on yourself, always stick to your principles. Always stick to to what you believe. Never compromise on your principles, like we talked about in a Hanukkah episode. As opposed to other people, then always compromise and find the things that unite with when you're working with with others. Give up on your own um, conveniences uh, for the sake of making other people more comfortable. As long as when it comes to your personal beliefs and your personal practices, not in monetary affiliations with other people, not with uh, material conflict that always compromise, but on your, on your self growth, on your discipline, on your, on your truest essence, on your name, on your very name uh, that never compromise on your principles. Thank you so very much for listening, for partaking in this endeavor, in this enterprise of spreading ideas and Torah. If you have thoughts, if you have observations, if you have quotes, please send them over. We'd love to discuss it and hope you have a great and wonderful day. Oh, also share share the podcast. If you have like a friend or something, you know, think of one friend that could uh, will benefit from this episode or in general that might want to add to their podcast queue just send it out spread the word that's how uh this could uh could grow into to a community of chavrusas sort of like rich luckish and rabbi and the story we started off with looking forward and um hope you have a wonderful day <laughs>